<laughs> that's that's gorgeous writing. Hello, no script listeners. Welcome to another episode of our podcast, No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. Welcome back, everybody. We are excited to be back. We are excited as we are every week for the script that is ahead of us. Mm-hmm. It's a classic today. We are talking about Thornton Wilder's Our Town. Yeah, Thornton Wilder's Our Town. We've uh, I've interacted with this play before. I think many people have. It is often done in high school, probably by virtue of its unique characters and theatrical uh, themes and uh, devices. So I'm excited to get to talk about those. But before we jump into that action, just a real quick wanted to say thank you to everyone over at Patreon uh, who or who has checked out everything we have over at Patreon. Patreon can be thanked too, but specifically those of you who have looked at us over at patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast, making this show is a as a passion project for us we love doing what we do we love having these conversations with you and with each other it is not a free endeavor there are a number of costs that we accrue over the course of our putting this out we have some fees for hosting the podcast and obviously the uh, cost of buying all these scripts and a, a pretty significant chunk of time that we put in so if you are a longtime listener of no script podcast and you're looking for a way to help out the show checking us out over at patreon is the best way that you can do that we have a number of different tiers over there i think the low the, i know that the lowest tier is one dollar and for that one dollar amount you're helping the show out a whole bunch and you're getting access to some of our patron only posts and some of the extra things that we have going on over there so if you have a minute go on over to patreon.com slash no script podcast and we'll see you over there Absolutely. And now, back to the script. I've been saying that recently. Have you noticed that, Jackson? I go, back to and the script. And now, back to the script. I think that's, I like a, it. I, that's a fun element. I'll keep yeah. it up when it's my turn. Uh, <laughs> all right. So today, uh, like we've said, we're talking about Thornton Wilder's Our Town. Jackson was right on when he talked about this play as just incredibly popular. I mean, community theaters the world over have done this play. In fact, as I was doing some research to talk about the context, one of the productions that was noted over and over again was this production. It was either in Germany or in Russia that ended up getting shut down. It was just after World War II and the governments felt like they had to shut it down because in the wake of all that what hap- all of what happened, mm. it felt like it might be too depressing or something. Sure. Uh, and so, you know, that reaches out. Obviously, you get a sense of the history of the play just from that little story, but universal appeal. Lots of folks have done it and loved it. The play was originally produced in 1938. Um, It was produced at the McCarter Theater in Princeton, New Jersey. Uh, It was then on Broadway to much critical acclaim and has been revived several times, notably just recently in the past 10 years it's been revived. Of course, it also won the the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. We are continuing on our lovely, lovely journey of getting to talk about Pulitzer Prize winning plays. Yeah, it seems like no matter like how far back we go, we're, we're grabbing these these gems of different types of plays from different areas and time frames, and that's kind of the fun of doing these these good plays is seeing what was valued at those different times. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and the productions have been changed. There's been a number of film adaptions. Maybe what you've seen, I kind of remember watching, perhaps in high school, uh, the, the film, which actually was a telecast in 1989, of the Lincoln Center production. This was the famous one with Spalding Gray as the stage manager. Uh, great film of that was made. Actually, you can go and watch right now the opening monologue of the stage manager at this Lincoln Center production. And to see the design work for such a, you know, theoretically not design-heavy show, at least in terms of the set, is just awesome. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's there's plenty of uh, spots to kind of go to to see this play, uh, and, and and I'm sure many of you have done it in your own uh, local theaters as well, or or at least read it. It is a, it is also read as a piece of uh, theatrical history. Nevertheless, we are going to briefly synopsize the play for you. Um, this play takes place mostly over the course of 12 years. There is a little bit of time travel, which is kind of fun to see that, you know, plays even from way back in the early 1900s are playing the time travel. Um, but, uh, yeah, well, over the 12 years, it focuses on the story of this small town and really specifically on the, uh, the romance of this couple within this small town and some other events that happen around it. Um, the dates are from 1901 to 1913, so that's uh, setting us in a pl- in a time. The place is East Coast, uh, a little town called Grover's Corners, and uh, that's uh, in the Boston-ish area. So for for your placement there. Yeah, it is in reality because in the first monologue, the stage manager gives us the latitude and longitude coordinates. Uh And so, you know, it says, the play says that it's set in Grover's Corners, New Hampshire. And that's referenced a few times. Apparently, the rumor is, I haven't checked it myself, that the latitude and longitude is actually in Massachusetts. (laughs) <laughs> so I don't know. I, 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 don't, I don't know a ton about the history of state lines. Perhaps since Thornton Wilder wrote it, the state line between New Hampshire and Massachusetts has changed in some yeah. way. Perhaps it was just a mistake. Perhaps it was just a mistake. But regardless, it's in that, that uh, East Coast, New England area. And uh, and thus is kind of a town steeped in a lot of history. They talk about gravestones from the early 1600s that are there. So uh, a town that's steeped in history, it's kind of a small town, uh, somewhere in the 2000s in the population. At one point, the stage manager gives you a, a really precise breakdown of uh, of the, the, the city's size. Um, the big characters that we're going to be talking about, we've said uh, one of them already a couple of times, is the stage manager, which uh, we were kind of talking... Uh, beforehand, just a little bit about how how inept that name is for this character. <laughs> it's a very odd choice, and it's one that I know that Thornton Wilder has used a couple other times. There are stage managers in his other plays. Now, again, this could be one of those things for which, you know, almost a hundred years has changed our perception a little bit. But the role the stage manager takes in this production does not even seem remotely akin to what I think of as a stage manager. Not just because he talks to the audience, of course that is a change in the character, but also just in the role, right? I mean, the stage manager in this case is not calling any cues. In fact, I don't believe, if you think I'm wrong about this, Jackson, let me know. I don't think he asks for any, the stage manager himself asks for like, says, hey, turn that light on or bring that rope in. He does not seem to interact with the technical team in any, in any way, right? 
Yeah, uh, with the exception of perhaps like being the god that cues them, because um, there is occasionally he will he sets all the scenes, so he will like call out for something. Uh, like like a house or a door or arbors in their yard, and then suddenly on stage will appear something vaguely resembling those things. That's a good point. That's a good point. But his interaction with the play is more of a guide for the characters. The stage manager asks the characters to come out and play certain scenes. The stage manager describes for the audience where we are. At the very beginning, leads the audience through the setting, the location, the history, the time, and things things like that. It's it's an odd choice to call the character stage manager. I mean, I suppose in a very literal sense, if you take away what we know and think about the phrase stage manager, I suppose in a very literal sense, it makes total sense, right? The character right. manages the stage. Yeah, absolutely. And he introduces us to the stage. He guides us around what is a pretty bare set and uh, and uh, not not a lot of uh, decorations or anything. So yeah, he, he could be literally managing the stage. And I'll uh, say here, um, we are using he for the stage manager because that's how it's written in the script, right? We're doing uh, we're analyzing the script and just imagining sometimes what productions would be like. But for the purposes of this. This conversation, the script writes the stage manager is a man. The character could be very easily played by a woman. Absolutely. Um, a very similar character actually to, I don't remember the character's name. What's the character's name in Pippin that plays the similar role? Oh, the, no. The head uh, entertainer character. Yeah, I know who you're talking yeah, about. I can't that, think of it. That yeah. character in Pippin, for those who know Pippin, uh, is very similar to the stage manager role in our town. And again, the gender of that character is to unimportant to the point of being not even worth talking about. But I just want to let you know why we're saying he. Yeah. Yep. And we'll get into, I'm sure we'll circle our way back to the stage manager, but I'm just going to finish briefly uh, kind of touching on some of the big plot points of the play before we dive in there. Uh, the the stage, again, uh, to do that, I'll mention the stage manager again. Uh, stage manager kind of The stage manager kind of refers to... St- Act one as uh, daily life, and then act two as love and marriage, and then doesn't name act three, and maybe we will get around to naming act three. But the the play follows the daily life of of Grover's Square or Grover's Corners, and uh, the first the first act is just kind of getting to know everyone. It's this kind of quaint town. You get introduced to some of the the younger kids that we will that we will follow throughout. So the two big families, though, that you begin to follow are the Gibbses and the Webbs, and they're next door neighbors. Uh, it's a uh, it's a uh, families of. Uh, the Gibbs are Doctor Gibbs, Mrs. Gibbs, George Gibbs, and then the sister Rebecca. Uh, and then Rebecca Gibbs, and then the neighbors are Mr. Webb, Mrs. Webb, Emily Webb, and, oh, shoot, it begins with a W. What's his name? (laughs) Brother Webb. Wally. Wally Webb. Thank you. Um... And uh, you start seeing their interactions, and really, Act One is is just that. You're kind of introduced to these people, but what happens um, in Act One is you start to see what could be some sort of crush between George and Emily, uh, George Gibbs and Emily Webb. And uh, Act Two, you get to see that uh, kind of uh, come to fruition. They are uh, getting married, and then we jump back in time and see where they fell in love. And uh, Act Two is a lot about um, both them grappling with the reality of getting married at quite a young age, but also everyone around them grappling with that. Act three 
starts to touch on uh, so, some of the sadness of it. And we are warned of that by the stage manager. Um, we know that someone has died at the start of Act 3. And uh, and we get to see kind of who uh, the, the people around this person who has died uh, dealing with that fact, but then also the person who has died dealing with the fact. It's kind of a really cool theatrical moment. I'm going to save who exactly it is so we can kind of do a slow reveal over the time for those of you who like mystery and haven't read the play, but uh, we'll get there eventually. The plot, as you've described it, Jackson, simple. Yeah. Not not a lot of ups and downs. Um, we follow one journey back and forth through time for about two-thirds of the play, and then a very related, maybe continuation of that earlier journey um, headed in a different surprising direction in Act 3. Not a lot for... Um, I think that the plot is is designed to be the kind of thing that plays out in small towns and cities across the country. Of course it is, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 this resonative <laughs> resonative experience for people uh, of of whom live in small towns or can remember when their town was a small town. Cause even, uh, uh, Grover's square or great. I'm going to keep calling it Grover square. Grover's corners kind of goes through a little bit of an evolution of size as well. So it, it, it kind of touches on a lot of different people's areas who remember what a town used to be like. Absolutely. At the end of act two, the stage manager has a monologue about something that the town is about to do and the time – because the play jumps so much in time and the stage manager is a figure basically separated totally from the times of the play, it's a little hard to tell exactly when he thinks this is happening. I think it's in whatever time the stage manager exists in, which seems to be after all the events of the play, I think. If that's the case, whatever is happening at this time, the the bank, they're building a new bank in Grover's Corners. And when they do this, they're going to put in the like one of the cornerstones, basically a time capsule. And they're going to put lots of different things in the time capsule, a Bible, the Constitution, the New York Times, the town newspaper. And then the stage manager, uh, again, th this is the kind of character that knows that he's in a play and talks about that, says that they're going to put a copy of this play in as well and talks about how the only reason we know what life was like for Greeks and Romans was the theater that exists. Uh, that describes in some comic or tragic exaggeration what life was like for people at that time. So he says, this play is going to serve that. I'm going to read you the quote because I think it's so crucial. This is what he says. This is why they're putting the play in the time capsule. So people, a thousand years from now, this is the way we were in the provinces north of New York at the beginning of the 20th century. This is the way we were in our growing up and in our marrying and in our living and in our dying. Mm-hmm. That kind of sums it all up right there. <laughs> That's the journey of this play. The growing up, the living, the getting married, <laughs> and the dying. That's... And That's it sums up the the intention, at least stated by the character. The intention of the play is to somehow communicate what life was like in small town New Hampshire at the beginning of the 20th century. What the play ends up doing, what what the actual result of that effort is, is I'm not sure totally the same because um, 
the the play is so relatable. I've never been to small town New Hampshire, but what I see in the play about Grover's Corners at the beginning of the 20th century feels familiar to me living yeah. in 2019. I'm from a city. I lived in a small town for just a <laughs> few years while I was in college. Now I live in a, a small city. I mean, I, I have, I'm very disconnected from Grover's Corners, New Hampshire. <laughs> Yeah, there's something weird about that. There's there's something which kind of ties me to maybe to to a bit of a question is why does this play serve as such a blank slate to so many different communities? Um so many uh, uh communities that I've seen interact with this play put their own spin on it and make it their own and you get you get the sense that like wow, this is actually talking about our community, um our town. Our town. Yes, yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. So so like there there are things about it. I agree that like I didn't grow up in a time when a milk cart wagon could come down the street and you bought milk and cream from the milkman. Um, but somehow that resonates in me from somewhere in my, in my I don't know literary history or something. Uh, what 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 are some of the big things in this play that uh, that touch on those uh, milestones or high points in our in our memory of being alive in cities and in communities. Right. I mean, I think that it it achieves what we're what we're trying to talk about here by virtue of, like you say, milestoning the human experience. As he says, right? Our growing up, our marrying, our living, our dying. These are if you set aside the marrying part, because not everybody gets married, the growing up and the living and the dying, I mean, that's the human experience, right? Yeah. For those mm-hmm. who grow old and die in their old age, you grow up, you live a life, and then you die. That's a very, you know, 50,000 foot view. And what the play does is put a couple of flagpoles in moments across that human life that that draws us in in such a touching, remarkable way. But your question was, let's talk about a few of those so yeah, yeah, now yeah. that i'm done waxing poetic about <laughs> it <laughs> the rambling is over let's talk specifics um i love the, the one of the ensuing conflicts throughout the play is between um uh uh, uh the mrs gibbs and dr gibbs uh this is again one of the two families and the conflict is basically dr gibbs is not taking any time off now remember, we th- we see the play at four different time periods, five different time periods throughout the play, and this conflict doesn't come up in every one of them. It's definitely a subplot, uh, but it comes up at least once in each of the main three acts in some way or another. And the conflict is, like I said, Dr. Gibbs isn't taking any time off. In the very first scene of the play, he comes home after having delivered babies overnight is going to crawl into bed and sleep for just a few hours, three, I think three hours, Mrs. Gibbs says, before he's got to go in and do more appointments. And Mrs. Gibbs is really worried about this and wants to take him away on a trip to get some real rest for him. And she's going to be able to do that because like an antique furniture salesman has come to their house and decided that he's willing to pay an exorbitant amount of money at the time for this antique, I guess, chest or something that belonged Mm -hmm. to her grandma. Or clock, maybe. Something like that. There's a piece of furniture that she's going to get a lot of money for. She calls it her legacy. Yeah. But what's the conflict there? She has she has the money in theory and wants to take him away on a trip to get some rest, but... 
Well, <laughs> there's, there's, yeah, there's two things. First of all, he won't take time off. But second of all, there's also a an argument that if he were to see somewhere else in the world, he would become discontent with Grover's corners. Right, because she doesn't just want to, like, hang out at home while he rests and use the money to fund, you know, basically an unpaid sabbatical. She wants to travel, especially yeah. to Paris. Yeah, it's like her dream to travel to Paris, France, um, and and see another country. One of, one of her lines is something along the fact that everyone who... Before everyone dies, they should see a country where someone doesn't speak English and they have, or where people don't speak English and they have no desire to. So she's like <laughs> targeting. What a remarkable line. Yeah. What yeah. a quotable line. Yeah. I mean, wow. That, that line hits like a drum every time. The, mm-hmm. and, what, and what a universal idea, right? Even today, this idea that as, as part of our life, we should go somewhere different than where we are. Right. <laughs> right. Somewhere where, where life is totally different. She uses speak English as a very specific example, but to speak more broadly, somewhere where people don't live in the same way we do and don't even want to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and that, that tension is 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 combated by Dr. Gibbs basically just being the safe strategy of being well, yeah, but if I see those things, maybe I'll want to be like the people are in those areas and and then I won't be content in, in Grover's corners anymore. And that conflict actually comes up in a different moment too. But for now let's stick with this one. I I love this little it's just a little life thing, right? It's just th- this married couple as they're growing older. Uh, one of them is concerned she's never going to get to see the world. She's concerned that Dr. Gibbs is never taking any time off, running himself ragged. But he's concerned that he doesn't want to change his habits, change his patterns. Apparently, every two years he goes to the Civil War battlefields. And that's like all he does for his vacations and his trips, right? right? A person stuck in the ruts of their life wanting things to go forward as they've always done, someone worried that there's never going to be a change, that there might be disaster at the end, that that's life, right? Yeah. I mean, that's a familiar story, even though I've never been to Grover's Corners, New Hampshire. Right. Which is, a fi- I know it's a fictional town. It's a fake okay? fine. Don't send me the email. I know it's a fictional town. <laughs> The, another one of those milestones, it's it's with the Gibbs again, so I'll bring it up at this point. I, I just love the Gibbs in general. As I was reading through the play, I was identifying so much with the, the Gibbs parents, and, and I was like, how am I supposed to pay attention to these other two? And then then eventually you swing the other way. But uh, there's there's a great... It's in the second act, and it's and it's leading up to George and Emily's wedding, um, which we'll circle back around to eventually. But there's this lovely little scene between Dr. Gibbs and Mrs. Gibbs prior to the wedding where they're talking about um, just, just their own feelings around the wedding day and how George is preparing and what he should be doing. And there's just this... This touching scene where they they basically reveal that they that their marriage was an arranged marriage. They never met each other prior to the the event of their marriage, and uh, and they they kind of in this intimate moment where they're remembering this, say, do you know what my biggest fear was? That we'd have nothing to talk about ever. <laughs> And then they both just break out laughing. And and we've been talking every day since. We never run out of things to talk about. And it's just this really touching moment between these two. It's almost like a a Tevye and Golda moment of the Do You Love Me from Fiddler on the Roof. It's this moment of, yeah, and it all turned out okay in the end. And it's this really, I I just think it's a beautiful moment and a really touching moment. That whole scene is 
full of little beats like that because it starts basically by Mr. Dr. Gibbs coming downstairs. It's the morning of the wedding and Dr. Gibbs says something like, well, one of your little chicks is about to fly the coop and Mrs. Gibbs like stops everything she's doing. She's (laughs) like, don't talk about it. I've been close to crying all morning. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that conversation has happened at countless dining room tables in the past year. Has it not? Across the world, the versions of that exchange. It's the Mm -hmm. morning of our child's wedding. Don't talk about it. I've been ready to cry all day. I mean, how many times have people said that in the past just year alone? It's incredible what kinds of human patterns Thornton Wilder was able to access in 1938 that are still around, that still speak to us. One of the great moments of the play, maybe my favorite moment it's gonna seem odd probably to a lot of you but one of my favorite moments is the day of the wedding george goes over to the webb's house i don't think one thing we've mentioned is that the webb's and uh and uh, the gibbs are neighbors they live right next to each other to the point where they're upstairs windows where george and emily do their homework in the in the act one are like they can talk to each other across the windows so that's how they grow up together and blah 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 anyway George goes over to see the webs, and uh, uh, Emily doesn't want to see him because it's their wedding day. But so Mrs. Webs goes upstairs to talk to Emily and leaves Mr. Webs and George alone <laughs> together. And they have just an ensuingly awkward conversation. It's like they're supposed to sit for a little bit and drink their coffee and not know what to say. And then Mr. Webb eventually just goes, so how are you, George? <laughs> Which like on startles morning, him enough to spill coffee. Yeah, <laughs> on the morning of George's marriage to his daughter. It, how are you, George? <laughs> and then it, the conversation is very awkward. It lasts for a long time. Mr. Webb's not at all happy about being left alone with George. So they made a whole big deal about this superstition about seeing the bride on their wedding day. Once George eventually leaves, Mr. Webb looks over to Mrs. Webb and goes, so did you hear about that other older, more important superstition about how the groom is not supposed to see his father-in-law on the wedding day either. <laughs> I mean, the awkwardness of, of family that's not yet family and how yep. do you deal with those interactions? It's great. It's so full. It's rich. Yep. In that scene is another really awkward, potentially awkward piece of dialogue between it's it's while Mr. Webb is talking to George and he kind of starts giving him advice. You think that he's giving him uh, like what uh, a marriage advice and it's and it's awful like it's like uh you know always lay down the law really early so that your wife uh he's he, wife wife will listen to you and he says that this these are the things that my father told me on my wedding day so do this and do that and then they, he wraps it all up with and then I promptly did none of those things, and we've had a happy marriage ever since. And, and it's especially good that he says that because all the advice from Mr. Webb's father is really <laughs> sexist real stuff. Bad. It's like make sure that you give her commands right away so she knows who's in charge, and never tell her about your money. And whenever she does something annoying, just leave the room. That'll get her. Right. <laughs> and there's yeah. this sort of like, especially this... now reading it, you're like, oh no, oh, okay. oh no, because yeah. it sounds like Mr. Webb is trying to give this advice to Joe. George that his father gave him. And then there's this, George kind of goes, well, I don't, it's okay. Well, and finally Mr. (laughs) Webb goes, like you said, 
And I never did any of that. And I had a happy life. <laughs> I ignored it completely. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone takes a deep breath. Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> yep. One of the other one of the other uh, milestones, at least for me, we've been talking a lot about kind of the parental stuff, um, which there's so much resonance about the parental stuff in this play. Anyone who has been a parent or ha- been a parental figure to anyone will resonate with this play. There's in fact, also, I, I would think maybe I, I could be wrong about this. I'm just guessing, but I would think one of the most notable images and memorable moments of the play for some odd reason is Mrs. Webb and Mrs. Gibbs sitting on the porch with the beans. Yeah. Right. I mean, that that's the scene. I, anytime people bring up our town, they always bring up that scene. Yeah. Be, just DB, you know, doing all this stuff with the beans out on the porch. It's like that it's for some reason, though the, the four parent characters sometimes tend to draw a little bit more of the memory of the nostalgia, maybe. Yeah, even to the point that the stage manager encourages the audience to hearken back to a time when you felt like this. Um, when you uh, when, when he starts doing the flashbacks of the of how George and Emily fell in love, he encourages everyone to uh, take a look back into your past at a time when you you know, could feel these things, could be surprised by people's remarks. You didn't really listen to everything that everyone ever said to you. Think back to those moments when you were a kid again. Right. And this, what we've described, this sort of mess of human experience, this gorgeous, beautiful picture of these little moments that resonate makes up about two thirds of the play. Yeah. Um, Wow. Is act three different? Oh yeah, Holy super different. Moly. I, I mean, yeah, Act Three could almost be a little one act if you change some things, but it, but you wouldn't get the resonance that you get from having lived through the first two acts. No, and it's it's just it's different in it seems to be different in style and in effort too. Uh, I have heard, again, this is not something I've independently verified, but I have heard that Thornton Wilder had the first two acts of the play ready to go but didn't know how to end it. And then he was in Germany, and apparently he took this long walk with an author friend uh, that inspired him, and he went home and wrote the whole third act in one go. Oh, wow. And it, it kind of feels like that. Not that the third act is any any rushed or any less brilliant, but I feel like that there's a little bit of a disconnect between mm. acts one and two and act three. Three, even just in terms of the theatricality up yeah. to this point, like the whole play is very theatrical. We will probably spend the last third of this podcast talking only about that. Yeah. But while we're still talking <laughs> about story, just in terms of the way the story interacts with the theatricality of the play, there's lots of miming. There's lots of bare props. There, there's lots of turning to the audience and talking. But up until this point, people haven't played things. I don't think. Moving Hmm. to the point where the characters play their own tombstones in Act 3, that's a little different. Or play their own disembodied spirits. Right. That's a change. That's that's different than what we have done before. Mm Mm-hmm. It's it's not a... uh completely out of the realm step as as we've mentioned and we'll talk more about this is a very theatrical play with some conventions included such as miming a lot of the props in the play. However, I agree that it does it does it it feels like a gear change. It feels like oh, oh, wait a minute. We're 
okay, okay, I, I'm with you now. <laughs> but right, there's still right. that, it, that beat. You, you hop on board right away. And Thornton Wilder has written a play that is so easy to just go along with. And in fact, as we move into talking about the just the meta-level theatrical decisions about where the play is set and things like that, that's one of its real strengths is that because it's set in such a disembodied location, we're just willing to accept whatever. So right. the third act comes and you're willing to accept it, but it's different. You want to well, describe for us what happens in the third act, Jackson? Yeah, yeah. I'll kind of break down the brass tacks of it. So after the wedding in act two, um, we learn that someone has died in, in act three and you're, and you're, and, and many people have died. I think it's uh, something like 10 years have gone by since the last act. And uh, we right away are introduced to a couple people who have died, familiar faces to us, someone at the wedding who interrupted things and said it was such a beautiful wedding and, oh my goodness, I love this wedding. There are familiar faces in the graveyard. Um, And they're all standing, uh, sitting there, as Jacob has said, very theatrically, sitting in chairs, uh, kind of hands on their knees, you imagine almost, as their own tombstones. Um, The actors are there as their tombstones. Um, and we learn pretty quickly through a conversation that is had between the uh, grave site proprietor and uh, and a, a young cousin who has come to town for a funeral that someone has died. Um, we learn uh, bit by bit that it's not probably George. Um, we know that Mrs. Gibbs is in the graveyard, so we and we were we were hinted at that earlier on. And uh, so what we end up finding out is as as the the funeral procession comes into the graveyard is that Emily has died. And then we kind of go into a a uh, Eurydice like experience where we're kind of with the spirits of the dead as they're processing their death. Yeah, it's almost Beckett like. It's interesting that you compared it to Rule. I, I feel like it it, fil- it fills the world of Beckett really easily too. And maybe there's <laughs> yeah. some similarities there. We should do an episode about that later on. Rule <laughs> yeah. and Beckett, the different yeah, ways. That'd be interesting. Yeah. Um, so the, the the third act starts with the stage manager describing the graveyard, basically, where people are, where they are. And that's been a change. At the top of act one, the stage manager describes the town. And then for two acts, we live in the town with the two houses, with the tables and chairs. At the end of act two, it transitions to a church. And then act three is a new location, the graveyard, which he has to relay out for us, including where all the old, oldest graves are from the early settlers through the Civil War soldiers some lovely things about uh, the men who sacrificed their lives to protect the union are, are written in their really beautiful writing. And then we get to the new part of the graveyard, and he tells us who's in it, as you say. Mrs. Gibbs, uh, a character named um, Mr. Stimson, who's the church organist uh, who is uh, apparently an alcoholic, and that's come up several times throughout the play. Apparently he's died. And Emily eventually shows up. It's the day of her funeral. Um, she died during childbirth. She did have a son. George has a son, and then their sec- George and Emily have a son, and then their second child, that's what caused Emily to die during childbirth. And she comes in and takes her place among the dead. And what occurs? What makes up the plot? Yeah, well, uh, they begin talking about what their role is. They kind of set an interesting view of the afterlife uh, very quickly in in the in the third act of this play, and and it's it's a little it's a little I, I don't I don't know exactly what the philosophical movement it would be, but a short long story short, um, 
people stay on Earth until their connection to Earth are is burned away. And whatever is eternal about them, there's some really beautiful lines about what element of humans is eternal and how we forget yeah, to look be- at I what is eternal. I agree with you because it's so gorgeous, I want to read it. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> um, so here's what he says. This, this is the stage manager describing the graveyard and describing the people that are now sitting on the chairs in the place of their tombstones, whatever. We all know that something is eternal, and it ain't houses, and it ain't names, and it ain't earth, and it ain't even the stars. Everybody knows in their bones that something is eternal, and that something has to do with human beings. All the greatest people ever lived have been telling us that for 5,000 years, and yet you'd be surprised how people are always losing hold of it. There's something way down deep that's eternal about every human being. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's gorgeous writing. Um, so so that's what they're all they're all wrestling with is that etern- like they're they're trying to burn off their earthly tie and let the the eternal go off. Um, and and they do that um, by kind of staying apart from the memories of their past. Their various people are trying to either trying to or being forced to uh, remove themselves from the events of their life. Um, and Emily is new to all this, so she yeah. hasn't learned this. In this way, Thornton Wilder leans into a very old theatrical convention. Someone new joins the group and learns the rules. Um, and, and and Emily wants to – some through the mechanics of however Thornton Wilder imagines death and, and the afterlife, you can relive moments of your life as a dead person. But And Emily learns this, and, and she's told several times that she shouldn't do it. She can, but she shouldn't. But being new to the group, needing to learn the lesson that everybody's learned, she decides to do it. She relives her 12th birthday. This is maybe the fifth different time period we go to. back. This is the oldest scene in the whole play, when she was 12. And the the memory of experiencing it is very painful for her. She's forced to sort of play herself at 12, and, and she lives through this whole experience knowing what's coming for the people around her, wanting to turn to her mother and say, I know you think I'm 12 right now and you're making me my favorite breakfast or whatever, but look at me. I'm not. I'm, a, I'm an adult. I had a child. You have a grandchild. Uh, our, our, my brother dies. I know he's coming just down the stairs now, but I know that later in life he dies. It, and she is unable to continue. It's too hard. Mm-hmm. If if the first half of the play is primarily for parents remembering back, the last act of the play I feel like is for children looking forward, um, a, kind of a warning rather than a nostalgic moment of like just just think about what you're experiencing every day. Think about who you're with who you're around and when you won't be able to be around them anymore and and what you would give to go back to change that. Because that's what Emily goes through in this is she she tries to recreate this moment in a way that is meaningful. She, she begs her mom to look her in the eyes and her mom is going about the daily routine. She's trying to get everyone ready to get out the door into school. She's trying to add meaning to a birthday and uh, she's just busy. So she's not, she's not looking her in the eyes. And so Emily eventually needs to leave and she can't go through the whole day. She doesn't even make it through the morning. Like Jacob said, and, and she has to come back and step away and realizes, realize both she and and there's one other character who kind of yells for a little while. I think you mentioned him. Simon Stimson yells at her kind of comment on this awfulness that is not knowing 
where you are, when you are there, and the importance of that moment when you are there. Yeah, this is what Emily says sort of at the conclusion of reliving this moment now as a dead woman, going back and having the foresight to look into the future and know what's coming, but still living this day as a 12-year-old. This is the kind of conclusion of that part of the play, what she learns from it. She says, I can't go on. It goes so fast. We don't have time to look at one another. I didn't realize all that was going on and we never noticed. Take me back up the hill to my grave, but first wait, one more look. It skips. I'm going to skip some here. It concludes, do any human beings ever realize life while they live it every, every minute? And the stage manager responds, no. <laughs> yeah. It, it turns sort of parabolic, doesn't it? Sort of a, a, a lesson moment. Mm -hmm. There is something that we were supposed to gain from this play, and it wasn't just the richness of the human experience. It was the two-thirds of the play that is about the richness of the human experience, those wonderful moments that just have us bursting with joy that we described. And then the stage manager tells us the play turns serious at the end, and it says uh, sort of a different moment. Are you in it? Are you aware of these richness of the human experience every every minute as emily says every every minute yeah and are you just or are you just plodding along not aware of the the glory that is around you the 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 richness of of what is around you and the people who are also sharing their life with you i think it is also a call to notice each other um this this play there's 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 so many we, we've talked about maybe eight characters. I think there's like maybe 15 <laughs> or something like that. And there's so many of these satellite characters who are around them. There's the milk delivery guy. There's the there's the newspaper delivery boys of which there are two each time. And these these just like little touchstones of relationships s still can have meaning if you're present in the moment that I, I think that's part of the call of this. Play right. well. It's no accident. But just as you described, the thing that causes her the pain as she goes back to really of this day is that her mother won't look at her and she won't look at her not because she doesn't like her or because she's mad at her it's not that kind of scene she's just busy she's getting ready for the day she has all these chores and it's an it's a very interesting uh, really poignant shift because for the first two-thirds of the play i use that two-thirds just because it's two acts and then the third act i'm not sure that the page page numbers or or showtime actually breaks out to two-thirds but for the first two acts we have watched something that revels in, that highlights the beauty of the everyday routines. Those things, those parts of life that just we keep moving through. It highlights that as, as a existential dramatic experience. And then we come to the third act and the, the commentary changes a little. It says, but what about the fact that we also get so caught up in all that that we miss out on the connections, the things we're actually going to remember, those that that eternal part of what is in human beings. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I I I agree that while while the the end of the play kind of turns a little bit and shifts to something else, I think. I think it is still the piece that's going to like hang with me for the longest though, because it is such a turn. Um, you're, you're not 100% ready for it, but when it happens, it frames the rest of the play and, and it kind of completes a lot of the different steps of the play for me. It makes you look back at those moments before and they, it adds meaning to all of them as a result of it. 
I totally agree. Well, we don't have that much time left, and we haven't <laughs> talked much about the probably the most major thing about the play, right? Yeah. It's well, designed. Visually, yeah. Yeah, certainly visually, you're not going to see this play without noticing the fact that there's not much to see in this play other than the actors. Um, it's a very bare theatrical uh, uh, set. There's there's uh, pieces moving on and off, but they're very minimal. Uh, things get constructed out of other things. For instance, an ice cream bar is made from two chairs and a piece of wood from the table or something like that. Um, so yeah, it's a very, I guess you could say it's just, a, it's a, an imaginative play. Um, whatever it, it you is, could... it is minimalist to the extreme and mm-hmm. Thornton Wilder is very specific and, and, you know, as I often do, I like to look at production photos from, uh, from this play done around the world as I got to see. And, uh, man, I tell you what, I think some of them had too much set. Really? Thornton, I think so. There are some of them that had different bits of scaffolding and things in place instead of the ladders. I mean, I would really push against that if I had any artistic say in a production. Mm. Thornton Wilder wants as little as you can get. Tables, chairs, ladders, board. That should be yeah. it. I think that's all the set that is called for. Tables mm. and chairs for two families, the two ladders, and then a board. I think that's it. And then the, the tables, for the chairs for the graveyard. But presumably yeah. the table chairs become those or at the very least then you need another set of chairs. Right. Right. And that, I mean, that that just sounds like such an exciting prospect for me, not only because of just the cool theatricality of it and the possibility for like, you know, pulling the table apart to make different things and stuff like that. That all sounds like a fun challenge for a designer, but also because it makes this play infinitely producible for so many different houses. You don't have to commit a ton of resources to do this play. It kind of equalizes the playing field to access the themes that are in this play. Right, and I suppose there's different directions to go from there, right? I mean, Thornton Wilder doesn't tell us a lot about the light design, for example. He gives a couple indications of the fact that there should be a full sound design. Mm -hmm. Uh, For example, when the milkman comes on, again, no props. He doesn't have a horse, even though he has a horse, so you mime the horse. You're even supposed to mime the milk bottles. I mean, minimalist. But the the playwright does say in the stage directions, the sound design should include the sound of milk bottles. So presumably he imagines the sound design is full of – is a full imagining of what the scene sounds like even without all the props and set. But he doesn't tell you much about light design. So what does that Mm -hmm. mean? Is it a wash and you play in a wash or does the light design become very robust and very – does a lot of work to highlight the different places the audience should be looking, the different rooms, things like that. I'm not sure what way to go. Yeah, there is a little bit of a hint, but uh, th- that that light design is important. He mentions during the the time travel back to 1899 when Emily goes back, there's supposed to be more light, like harsh light over there in that. Yeah, it's in like that. snow light. He says mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah. Also, just before we get too far away from the sound design, just just to think about the level of decision around making milk bottles. A noise for a mimed prop. This play was written way back in the 1900s, so very likely the the sound the sound call for that is someone off stage with a crate of milk cart milk That's bottles right, yep. rattling them. So it's yep. not just uh, simplicity or minimalism for 
that's for minimalism's sake. The, the sound effect and the bottles are right off stage. This is an intentional choice to bring about an effect that that is that promotes your imagination to engage with what is going on and promotes your you as the watcher to say, wait, there's there's sound and there's there's no bottle. Oh, this is so cool. And this is a response, <laughs> of course. It's a very specific response. I think most people that have had some interaction, some study of our town know that Thornton Wilder was real upset with the theater of the time. He felt like what was going on on Broadway especially was big set, big costume, big experience, and it lacked utterly in terms of story and writing. And so Thornton Wilder writes a play that is very small in terms mm -hmm. of spectacle. The spectacle is not to the point where they mime the props, right? They mime the milk bottles. <laughs> they mime the, the peas and the and things like that that they got going on. They mime their plates of food. They mime the milkshakes they're supposed to get. I mean, everything. As minimalist, really, as you could hardly imagine. And instead invests the rest of that time into story and writing and, and creating some really beautiful moments. I love this moment of stage direction combined with narration. This is very near the beginning of the play. The stage manager is introducing the Gibbs house. And he says, this is the Gibbs house. This is the back door. The stage directions say, two arched trellises covered with vines and flowers are pushed out one by, the, uh, one by each proscenium pillar where the two houses are. And the stage manager says... There's some scenery for those who think they have to have scenery. <laughs> How great is that? Thanks. Thanks. Oh, man. That is fantastic. There's some scenery for those who think they need to have scenery. Yep. You can hear the scorn. Oh, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. There's a couple moments of that, too, where where someone will say goodbye and then the stage directions say various goodbyes are exchanged or something like that. Like this, in general, you get the feeling that this playwright, Thornton Wilder, but let's, let's, let's talk about it in the abstract. This playwright is encouraging or, or just acknowledging the fact that you are a competent theater artist who is reading this and you will be able to fill in things <laughs> that, that make sense. He's, yeah, it's a, it's a challenge to what we think of even now in theater. The, there's a problem of spectacle, mm -hmm. right? The shows that make a ton of money are oftentimes big spectacle and they lack in terms of writing and story oftentimes. It's not true across the board, of course, but big spectacle shows tend to make a lot of money. And somebody like yeah. Thornton Wilder in 1938 says, what are you doing? <laughs> That's insanity. Yep. <laughs> I can make a really meaningful play with a ladder and a couple of chairs and a table. <laughs> and, and, I mean, it's incredible what I mean, it that becomes an incredible bit of design, right? I mean, we, we've talked about some plays that have memorable designs that just have to accompany them. What comes to mind? Something like Mary Zimmerman's Metamorphosis, right? At Mary Zimmerman's pool in Metamorphosis is to me akin to the prescribed minimalism of our town. I mean, they, hmm, they come, yeah. there is a sense of that is that, that not, that's not just a design choice where within to tell the story. That's part of the story. 
It's part of the experience. In fact, some I, I I'm not I, I might quibble a little bit with this description, but but some of what I've read in researching the context of the play is that they describe the play as being set in a theater. Right? It's not just that it's a play about Grover's Corner and uh, you're doing it minimalistically. The play itself is set in a theater with you know not a lot of stuff to do a play with. Right. I, I think I, I think I'd agree with a lot of that because I mean he also is very the the stage manager is also very intent on treating the audience as an audience um, that the 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 way he comports himself on stage presents a very self aware uh, nature to the play of this this attitude of yeah we're in a play and we're telling a story I I, I think where I would want further clarification and then firm decisions as a design team is how much the characters slash the actors know that they are in a play. Um, because that'll dictate how you move on to stage, how you start scenes, etc. Um, and, and that'll, I think that, that is the bigger kind of question in my head with that, with that choice. And when they do in dough, right? As you're thinking through the direction and the acting of the play, you'd have to think about when is a character in a scene versus talking to the audience? Because characters do talk to the audience at several times. When are they one or the other? Is there much difference at all? One of the production photos I saw just had the cast sitting on chairs around the edge of the play. And those who know anything about me and what I like in terms of directing, I mean, that's what I would do. I wouldn't right. even bother with entrances and exits. Yeah. I'd put some chairs around and have the cast sit down and have them step up and join the scene and sit back down. I mean, that level of theatricality is is not just warranted by the script, but required by this story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very encouraged and and will resonate deeply within this play if if you if you make those design choices. I think that's pretty much it for for our conversation there. This this is a great as as we've been saying this whole time. This play has so much uh, through line throughout our culture. It keeps being done. I imagine it will continue to be done uh, despite the fact that we don't have milkmen in the streets anymore for, for many <laughs> decades to come. I think, I think this play speaks so much to the human experience and, and I, I don't think it's going anywhere. Yeah, it's got just some really memorable, not just the stories, not just the design, but the stories and design combinations. I mean, how can you ever forget George up on one ladder and Emily up on another <laughs> ladder talking to each other through their windows doing homework? Once you've experienced that, how could you ever forget an image like that? It stays with you. There's a poignancy not only of the the incredible characters and story being told, but of the way it's being told too. Right, right. It's it's a it's a full experience, a full theatrical, but also very story based experience. So so if you have had this experience, if you've read this play, if you've been in this play, if you've watched this play at any point al along your journey, we would love to keep having this conversation with you on any of our social media accounts. You can find us on uh, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. The username is at NoScriptPodcast. We also have an email, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. And let's keep having the conversation. Oftentimes, especially if you're reading plays, but just in general, it's nice to have conversations with people who talk about plays. We do. We know you like to have them as well because you're listening to this podcast. So hit us up on any of those sites. We'd love to keep talking with you. 
Absolutely. If you've liked this episode, if you've liked some of our other episodes, and right now we got a lot of them. We just keep growing, don't we, Jackson? Season three. One a week. (laughs) If you have liked what we've been doing, please share about it on your social media. You can actually just share an episode. That's a great way to do it. Tell your friends verbally. Write about it on social media. Help us keep growing the NoScript community. We're blessed with the community we have. We want to keep growing. You can find us on Podbean, where the podcast is hosted, but we also have it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. Every Monday, the link to the new episode is posted on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Yeah, so until next week, when you'll see that link on any of those places about us talking about another play, I'm Jackson Nikolai. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for No Script, the podcast. Yeah, yeah. See ya. See ya.